This Gum Bands podcast is made possible by the Buell Foundation, serving southwestern Pennsylvania since 1927, and by listeners like you. Thank you. Okay, this is Gum Bands, episode whatever it is, with Rick and Rich. Take one. (laughs) Eight? I'm not sure. Who's doing the intro, you or me? I'll do the intro. Welcome to Gum Bands. My name is Rich Capaldi, and I work with Rick Seaback producing these shows. Usually you'd hear Rick right now, but today we're doing something a little different. QED producer Rick Seaback is the guest on this episode. If you've lived in Western Pennsylvania in the past few decades, you may know who Rick is. Even if you don't know who he is, you may know some of his shows. Pittsburgh A to Z, a hot dog program right beside the river. Downtown Pittsburgh, South Side, North Side Story, the Pennsylvania Road Show. What makes Pittsburgh Pittsburgh? The Mon, the Al, and the O. Rick has been making lots of shows throughout the years, some of which have helped us to learn all about this region we call home. For this episode, I thought it could be fun to learn a little bit more about Rick. This is Gum Bands, episode 008, Rick Seaback. And we thought that this could be fun today to talk to you. Well, you you suggested it. <laughs> um, I, I would think it's maybe a little premature in the history of Gum Bands, um, but I know that you're aware that I, I have this weird anniversary coming up. It's a milestone. Well, a career milestone, <laughs> um, which is 50 years in well, with public broadcasting. Right. It'll be 50 years since I first worked for a public television station, which was in South Carolina. I was still a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but I got uh, a summer internship at South Carolina Educational Television working with a Pittsburgh legend, Josie Carey, who helped start WQED. She was Fred Rogers' producing partner on the first show down here at WQED, which was called Children's Corner. And uh, I wrote her a letter. I mean, you know, I sat at a typewriter. (laughs) That's how you got the internship? That's how, well, I I sent her a letter and I said I remembered her from Pittsburgh. And uh, I had a fellowship that would partially pay for my summer and would she consider having a summer intern uh, on her children's show that she was making in South Carolina, which I had heard about, called Wee, <laughs> W-H-E-E-E exclamation point. And uh, she responded to my letter, and she said, you know, hey, we'd like to meet you. Why don't you come down on your spring break? So I did that. I went to Columbia, South Carolina for the first time. I stayed in a sleazy little motel <laughs> on uh, Two Notch Road, and uh, I, I went, and they seemed to like me. And they said, yeah, let's do this. We'll take you on as a summer intern, come back in early June, and we'll start then. So I had to finish up school, probably in early May at Chapel Hill. I drove back to Pittsburgh, got everything together, decided what I needed to take to South Carolina. And I drove back to South Carolina, found a place to live. And I went to work that first day at South Carolina ETV, which was June 5th, 1973. And it was my birthday. And I went in and Josie said, hey, welcome. You're so happy you're here. How are you feeling today? And I said, great, it's my birthday. (laughs) And Josie said, no, you don't start a new job and say it's your birthday, like hoping that we're going to be nice to you. (laughs) And we all laughed about it and everything. But that's why I remember that I started that job, never knowing that how few jobs I would have in my life. Uh, I mean, I've only, since college, I've only had two jobs, both in public television, one in South Carolina for 11 years, 
and now here at South Carolina ETV, I mean here at WQED, uh, for 36 years. So, uh, you know, uh, we're coming up to 50 years of solid, but this year is just the 50th anniversary of me first working for PBS. I, I, uh, the next summer I was a student in France. I took a year off and went to France and did my junior year abroad and sort of stayed through that next summer. So I didn't, but then Josie had me back and I used to work while I was still a student. I would drive from Columbia, South Carolina, uh, I'm from from Chapel Hill down to Columbia to work with her, and it's all I, re- I remember. I would drive late on Friday, often at night, and I remember one time a cop pulled me over, and he said, uh, "You know your tail light is out." He said, "I just wanted somebody to talk to," and I just thought I remember that, that the cop just wanted somebody to talk to. He was the middle of the night, and I guess he was falling asleep or something, so uh, it, it, it worked out okay. So if we go back. Um, so you were actively trying to work in television, uh, you know, did you know that? When did you know you wanted to work in, in TV or did you know you wanted to work in TV? No, not till I was in college. Uh, and at Chapel Hill, they had a department, uh, which is now called the College of Communications. Uh, but at that time, it was called RTVMP, Radio Television Motion Pictures. I actually started, I think, assuming that I would be a double major in English, I always knew that I would be an English major, English and theater. I'd done a lot of theater in high school and stuff, and my mom helped found Stage 62 in Bethel Park, and we always had community theater uh, in our lives. And uh, as a theater student, on weekends, we had to go be talent (laughs) uh, for a TV workshop in Raleigh. It was through the RTVMP department, they were allowed to take over the studio of a commercial station in Raleigh. And we had to go just be people that they needed, you know, people to be guests or people to be hosts or people to be in a drama or anything. And uh, I went I went and did that pretty regularly. And I just thought the guy who was teaching that course was so good. And I said, uh, I want to take his course. And they said, well, you have to be a major in RTVMP to take his course. And I said, okay, I'll change my major. Why, you know? And I did. Um, and I, I dropped the theater and I went to TV. And I don't think I ever looked back. I, you know, um, uh, his name was Paul Nichols. He had been a director uh, of television during sort of what they used to call the golden age of television, you know, like live dramas and stuff. And that's the way he taught it was, you, you know, you're going to do this live and you had to do your whatever project you were doing you were live and I remember you had to come in on time you were allowed to be one second off and then for every additional second you were off as far as time was concerned you lost a letter grade so if you were two seconds off best you could do was a B Um, you had to come right in because he said that's the way television is it's time specific so uh, you know and I I always liked his classes and but I, I, I double majored in English and, uh, you know, that always helps with writing and all of that. And uh, You born here, born Pittsburgh, grew up in Bethel. Born in Southside Hospital. Um, I, my parents had already moved to Bethel Park. They were both from Hazelwood. Um, and uh, my dad was in the service. Uh, he was a Navy pilot, I mean, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, but he was just a little too young to be in World War II. I think all during the war, he was studying to be a pilot and 
we have nice pictures of him in the South Pacific and stuff, but it's after. Okay. And it wasn't until Ken Burns did the war and my father had passed away that I thought, I, I, I never asked dad, where were you when the bomb was dropped? Yeah. Because that's, you know, what sort of ended the war in the Pacific. It had already ended in Europe. And I thought, like, was dad there? Was he en route? Right. And um, so I had all his stuff, and I, I went through it to see if I could find anything. And I found a program. He was playing football in Pensacola, Florida, the day the bomb was dropped. Was he in the service at that yeah, time? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he okay. was in, you know, a Navy team uh, oh, playing. Okay. Pensacola is where they had a pre-flight school. Mm. He spent a lot of time at uh, Dartmouth in Vermont. Um, where Fred Rogers went to school for a while. And uh, then he uh, was down there at Pensacola pre-flight. And your mom worked? My mom worked all the time. Um, I, you know, she was a student at uh, Carnegie Tech. Oh. Uh, so close. I mean, technically, I think we right now are on campus. I, I think the land that QED is on is on campus. And my mom uh, was a student there. Um, I'm not sure if she did one or two years. Uh, her family was not very well off. I mean, my mom was pretty poor. She lived below the tracks in Hazelwood. Um, but uh, I think it was when she passed away that I found out she was able to go to college at Carnegie Tech on a scholarship from the Buell Foundation. Oh, really? Yeah, and it just, you know, that's so weird because they've been so good to me. The Buell Foundation has been my principal funder. And they've sent my mom to college. That's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. It sort of like makes me like, Ugh! <laughs> um, which is the way I've always felt about it. Um, and uh, she actually dropped out to work so that my father could finish at Pitt. Okay. And uh, I think she always had a bit of regret about that. She went back and she finished her school at uh, Carlo in the early 80s before i came back to pittsburgh uh from south carolina she she graduated from carlo and you know that that just uh she was so happy to have a college degree but it was quite a bit uh after she started <laughs> were either of your parents storytellers writers readers did you get that from wow. either of them um that's interesting i don't know if i've ever considered that my mom was a great reader and i think that was a huge influence my mom was always reading and uh and it's funny, I hear all these things now about people with, you know, upset about kids' access to books and everything. My mother always said, I don't care what you're reading as long as you're reading. Yeah. And I think that's a good rule. I don't care what you're reading, you know. <laughs> and, and I know that I learned so much about everything just by, you know, every, she didn't care about comic books. That was fine, you know, as long as you're reading. Um, and, uh, but, you know, she was a good talker. Uh, and uh, my dad, however, was a was a salesman, and I think okay. all salesmen are good storytellers and very uh, outgoing and all of that. So uh, yeah, my dad, uh, you know, I, I'm sure could tell a tale, uh, and you know, I, <laughs> I wish I had some recordings, but I don't. So as a kid, what kind of kid were you? Like, did you like school? Were you constantly reading? Did you yes. like television, film? Any, all? Uh, yeah, I like those things. I, 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 was, uh, I was a chubby kid, uh, and uh, I, I, I can't say that I ever was involved in any sports. Um, I have great memories of, like, sled riding and stuff like yeah. that on our street. We had a great street that was a dead end, and so it was always one of the last streets to be plowed and cindered and all of that. And we could start at the top of our hill and, you know, make a chain of sleds coming down. Um, and... 
uh, no, I love school. I, I always love school. And uh, I had an older brother, Skip, and he was uh, two years ahead of me in school. He was 18 months older than me. Um, but I was always jealous uh, of him, you know, being a little bit ahead of me. And always that, that was always a driving force. Uh, you know, I got to keep, keep up, up with Skip. <laughs> yes. And um, actually, I, I remember uh, in the car. I can remember being in the car and Skip could read and I couldn't. And that was like, whoa. <laughs> and um, I think I, I may have told that story, you know, the show that I did here at QED called Things That Aren't There Anymore mm-hmm. really came about because I was driving through the Liberty Tubes and I remembered signs, that neon signs that used to hang in the tubes that said, do not cross center line. Now it's funny, there's no signs hanging from the ceiling in the Liberty Tubes now, but they were there when I was a kid. And Skip could read them and I, I didn't, you know, and he was like, I know what that says. <laughs> mm. <laughs> So, uh, you know, yeah, uh, but I always loved school and I think I was always a good student and I did my first six years at St. Valentine's in Bethel Park and then uh, sort of followed the family tradition, which Skip had started, of going to the public school for junior high. You know, uh, that's, I don't know, do we still call it middle school? I'm never sure anymore, but yeah, it would be like middle school, but we called it junior high. It was seventh and eighth grade, separate building, and then uh, on to Bethel Park, senior high and... uh, yeah, I but, mean, I, I feel lucky about all that. But in high school, you were an exchange student, right? I was an exchange student. Uh, that would have been uh, after my junior year. Um, okay. Bethel Park, I, I, this is still like incredible. I mean, at that time, I don't know if they still do it. I probably should know. But at that time, um, they paid for you to go to be a foreign exchange student. You know, it wasn't a cost to my family. Um, it was a set fee, and like depending on where you went, you would have a little more spending money or something like that. Um, and so I went in 1970. Um, it was the summer I was a foreign exchange student to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And uh, before that, I was the first boy, maybe ever. It was always girls that went as foreign exchange students, but I always thought that sounded so cool, and I had this urge to travel. And... Uh, I also didn't speak Spanish. All, all the girls would go to the same city. All the girls from Bethel Park that were foreign exchange students would go to Rosario, Argentina. Hmm. It was like a you know path yeah. that, that was set up, and I think they, they liked that. It was a tradition that girls from Bethel Park would go to Rosario, Argentina. But because I had one semester of Spanish, which I took thinking this will help me look good as a foreign exchange student, I had tons of French. Okay. I had, uh, by the time I was a senior in uh, high school, I was taking French five because oh, wow. I had, you know, advanced placed and everything. And that was because a kid in my grade school, his mother was a French war bride, uh, Mrs. Larkin. And she thought she would learn English better if she taught kids French. So I did that from second grade through sixth grade and beyond maybe. We used to go to her house. She used to come to class. But then after, you know, too many kids moved and changed and the class, nobody, everybody wasn't at the same level in French, she would have six or eight of us at her house. And I can remember she even taught us how to make uh, her favorite stew, you know, which was really great. Uh, ragout. We, we R-A-G-O-U-T. That's the French spelling oh, okay. of ragout. Um, it was a, a uh, 
beef and potatoes stew, really excellent with red wine. And I remember my mother made it, and my mother said, and I put carrots in it. And I can remember Mrs. Larkin saying, no, 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 you do not put carrots <laughs> in my stew. That is Irish. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, but... Uh, I, I, you know, so I, I got to go to Brazil, and, and that was because I think at Boy Scouts one night, there was a guy from Brazil, and, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about being, uh, applying for, uh, for an exchange student, and he said, oh, you go to Brasilia. He said, you know, the new capital, it's this incredible city, that's what you want to do. And so that's what I put down as my preferred destination, Brasilia. Yeah. And then I get notified that I'm going to Rio de Janeiro, instead and um there was a meeting at taylor alderdice high school of all the kids from the pittsburgh area who were going to go to brazil as foreign exchange students i'm gonna guess we were 30. okay and uh we went there that night and of the 30 uh six of us were going to rio and the other 24 were going to sao paulo okay and just the way you think as a high school student i think like oh everybody's going to Sao Paulo and I have to go to Rio. <laughs> Never knowing that I hit the jackpot. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone who was in Sao Paulo, all they really wanted to do was go to Rio because Rio is the incredible city. I mean, Sao Paulo is good, but, you know, Rio is, is, is amazing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and I just had a spectacular summer as a foreign exchange student. Um, I, I love talking about it. Yeah, it was a World Cup that year, right? The, I, I arrived on a Thursday, and I think the World Cup was on Sunday, and uh, Pelé was playing yeah. for Brazil. It was in Mexico City. Um, and I remember, I didn't know who Pelé was. And the guys in Brazil, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know who Pelé is? I said, I, I don't know who Pelé is. <laughs> and there was like, it was inconceivable to them <laughs> that I wouldn't know uh, who Pelé was. And uh, yes, and so I was there. I My family spoke very little English, um, Vargas de Oliveiras, and uh, the father had worked for the Bank of Brazil, and he had been to America, and he spoke a little bit, but not a lot, and wasn't, they thought, hey, I was there to learn Portuguese, you know, Uh, we don't really want to talk English to you. Um, Did you pick it up, the Portuguese? Yeah, well, you have to, yeah, Yeah. and, and, but nothing written, or very little written. Okay. My Brazilian mother, Dona Lelia, she would sometimes sit with me at the dining room table and we would do, you know, cup. What is a cup in there? Copa? Uh, or, uh, I, I always, there's different words, gahafa. I, I forget what's a bottle and what's a cup and all of that. But uh, I, I, yeah, but I hung out with, you know, uh, my two Brazilian brothers, Edu and Kiku. Edu was my age and we became great friends. And uh, yeah, while I was there, I was on a program called International Fellowship out of Buffalo, New York. And uh, there was a tragic accident. Everybody on international fellowship who went to Peru died in a plane crash on their way to Machu Picchu. So it upset that, you know, structure of their organization. And they were willing to consider, you know, weird changes. And Edu said he didn't want to come to America unless he could come to my house. And so we said, can we have a direct exchange, which they didn't like to do. And they said, you can do a direct exchange if you take another one first. So we had two foreign exchange students come to our house in Bethel Park. Roberto Gandara Guzman from uh, Guatemala. And uh, then Edu came uh, like days before Christmas. Stay in touch with them at all? I don't. I, I'm not in touch with either one of them. And that's a little bit disappointing. I've looked them up on Google and stuff yeah. and uh, nothing has come up. But uh, 
yeah, no, it was it was a great experience and one that I loved. And so you came back and you finished school. I came back. I did my senior year at Bethel. And uh, what made you go to UNC? I was re- when it was time to apply to colleges. I was reading "Look Homeward Angel" by Thomas Wolfe, and he describes Chapel Hill in that book. He calls it Pulpit Hill, but it was pretty obvious what it was. And I just thought, like, oh, I kind of like this. And uh, I applied to three schools: Harvard, Yale, and UNC at Chapel Hill. Okay. Uh, I was not accepted at Harvard. I was accepted on the waiting list at Yale and. Chapel Hill was like, please come here. We, you know, we'll put you in the honors program. Da, 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 da. And so I said, you know, like, okay, I'm going to go to the one that really wants me. And yeah, yeah and I loved it. I, I, it was a part of the country I'd never thought I would get to, but now that I love. When I was in the Carolinas, I always said Pittsburgh was home. When I moved back to Pittsburgh, the Carolinas seemed like home because uh, I spent 16 years there. So you went through school at Chapel Hill. You got your internship. You also went and studied in France. You're right. That was the sum- that was, I spent my summer with Josie in, mm-hmm. in Columbia, South Carolina, at South Carolina ETV, and then I went and did a year in France. And so that was 73, 74, and I graduated in 75. Lyon. I, I was in Lyon, yes. It's, uh, you know, I, I say it's, it's very much the Pittsburgh of France. Why? Uh, two rivers come together. I mean, they don't make a new, you know, it's, it's more sort of standard. The Rhone and the Saone come together at Lyon and continue on as the Rhone. The Saone is a smaller river, but we've, we got that. And then there's a big hill with a church on it. Just reminded it me of Pittsburgh, you know. Um, and uh, But it's an industrial city um, with a great arts community and everything. So it was, it was very Pittsburghy, and I liked it. And it's also... Many people still acknowledge it's the world capital of gastronomy. You really eat well in Lyon. Yeah. And at that time, the most famous chef there was Paul Bocuse. And uh, he had his famous restaurant about 20 miles north of downtown Lyon, I think. Um, and uh, we were supposed to go there for my friend Jim Bird's uh, 21st birthday. And he got appendicitis. And his birthday is May 21st, which I remember because it was also my mother's birthday. And he was in the hospital, so we couldn't go as we had planned to go to Paul Bocuse's. We had waited all year to do it. And he said, well, your birthday's coming up. And I said, yeah. So we went for my 21st birthday. On my 21st birthday, on my 20th birthday, I started a South Carolina ETV. On my 21st birthday, I went to dinner at Paul Bocuse's restaurant. And uh, just called Bocuse. And he was on the cover of Time magazine that year, so he was a really famous chef. And so then when you finish school, you're still working at SC? Well, no, I, I, had a good, uh, I had a good six months of job hunting. Oh, really? But you stayed down there? No. no. I, I came home. Um, you know, uh, I remember my dad apologizing. He said, I don't know anybody in the business you want to go into. And uh, I know that he said, I, I don't know how to help you. Um, and I said, you know, hey, you know, you, I'm not expecting you to, but uh, they, uh, yeah, I, uh, I spent about six months, terrible, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so different now. I mean, back then you had to like, you know, type resumes and, uh, you know, you could, you could have them reproduced, but everybody always suggested, oh, no, make your resume specific to the job you're applying for. And I was looking at ad agencies and things like that, and then... Someone called me from South Carolina ETV and said, hey, we have a project that we're going to do for the federal government. We need a production assistant. 
and are you available? And I said, yes. And so I drove back to South Carolina and it was an energy conservation film. And you know, it was about what you could do to make your house more efficient and all of that. It was right after the first uh, big energy crisis. And uh, I thought the script was terrible. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't, I mean, I knew people, but I was essentially alone and I had a little apartment um, in uh, Shandon which is a neighborhood of, uh, of Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, I rewrote the script. As a production assistant. As a production <laughs> assistant. I just, I just thought, like, here's what I would do. I mean, I'm a typewriter. Uh, not on a word processor, but on a typewriter. And, uh, I mean, incredible chutzpah. Mm -hmm. I took it to the writer. Oh. <laughs> um, and, like, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm eternally grateful to her because... Uh, you know, she didn't like, like, who the hell are you, you are? Yeah. Um, it was more like, oh, she's, this is really good. She said, but you know what? My script has been approved by like six government agencies and we're not turning back. Yeah. She said, but we have an opening for a writer. And she said, this would be a really good sample to give of what you can do. And so I said, oh, okay. Um, as a production assistant, I was working in a building across the street from where the writers were, but I applied for that job and I got it. And uh, so that, that started my 11 years at Columbia, at South Carolina ETV. Um, and, and did you start getting into like making your own documentaries? Not immediately. Okay. We, I, we acted somewhat as, a, uh, as an ad agency for state government. The, the public television in South Carolina is a state agency. Um, and so uh, we, uh, we did a lot of things, you know, slideshows and public service announcements and all of that. I did a lot of that. Um, <laughs> also, I started to write for the newspaper okay. in Columbia, South Carolina, the state. And uh, a girl I knew in college had gone to work for Doubleday, the publisher. Yeah. And she, I don't know if she called me. Yeah, I think she called me. I mean, we didn't text at the time. She called yeah. me and she said, Rick, one of my things I have to do is uh, put new names on our reviewers list. Would you mind if I put your name there? Because you'd always used to review books for the uh, Daily Tar Hill newspaper in Chapel Hill. And I said, no, go do it. And she said, uh, okay. And I started every week or 10 days, I would get a big box of books on my front porch in Columbia, South Carolina. And I loved it. It was great. I got pretty much everything that I think the Doubleday was printing. And uh, I wasn't doing anything with them. And so I thought I should, I knew that there was a book page every Sunday in the local paper. And so I called that editor and I said, uh, you know, I you used to work for the Daily Tar Heel in Chapel Hill. I reviewed books and restaurants and plays and all of that. And he said, come over, I'll meet, you know, let's meet. And I did. And he said, uh, great, let's try it. He goes, here's my, here are the books I have. He, he also got books from all the publishers, not just from Doubleday. And he said, uh, take three, uh, pick one to, to write about. And he said, if I run it, I'll give you 20 bucks and you get to keep all the books. Nice. And so that started it. I became a regular reviewer. I was reviewing almost every week in the uh, paper, um, usually fiction, occasionally nonfiction. Um, but uh, Beryl Dakers was another producer at South Carolina ETV. She did a show called Arts the Thing. Okay. And it was an art show. And uh, one day she said to me, she said, hey, you write those reviews in the paper. I really like them. Why don't you come read them on my show like Gene Shalit does on the Today Show? 
I said, okay, cool. So I didn't even have to rewrite it. I could just read them. Um, and I started to do that for Barrel. I mean, you know, and uh, I think I'd probably done maybe two or three when the guy who had the nightly show on South Carolina ETV, which was called Carolina Journal, he said, I like those things you're doing for Barrel. Come and do them on my show. You'll have a bigger audience. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so I did that. And I think I only did one for him. That was Tom Fowler. I don't think I just like maybe one or two book reviews. And he said, you ride your bike to work every day. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, I want you to do a story about riding your bike to work every day. He said, I'll give you a cameraman. He'll help you and you can put it together and all of this. And uh, the next thing I know, I never did another book review. I just did little stories. I did stories about that I did the New York Times crossword puzzle every morning in a, the local hot dog shop. And, you know, it just it blossomed from there. And I started doing all these little stories. And I remember uh, one that I especially like about St. Patrick's Day in Five Points, which is an area in Columbia, South Carolina, near the university. It's where Hootie and the Blowfish are from. Okay. And um, the, uh, we did a, uh, my friend Buck and I did a, a thing about uh, St. Patrick's Day, and it was really fun. We used the Pogues music, and it was just, it was great fun, and that sort of seemed to be a turning point. And, uh, but Buck and I enjoyed working together. His name's Buck Brinson, and Buck and I enjoyed working together, and my dad got sick. And I decided I wanted to come see him. Um, and Buck said, I want to ride with you. And I said, okay. So Buck and I drove from Columbia, South Carolina here to Pittsburgh to see my dad. And uh, on the route, Buck said, we should do a show about the state dance of South Carolina. And I said, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, and the state dance had just been voted on in South Carolina. It's the shag, which is kind of a slow jitterbug that people did at the beach starting around the time of World War II, but still people do the shag in South Carolina. And uh, so when we went back, we talked to some people and a woman there helped us raise some money through tourism and all of that. And next thing you know, we had made a film. Um, I remember the head of production, uh, Peter Anderson, uh, he said, uh, our video equipment's really busy. If you'll do this on film and keep your ratio really low, in other words, you know, like most, uh, you know, films and videos have a ratio of foot, how much you shoot versus how much you use. Okay. And he said, if you can keep your ratio uh, like below 10 to 1 or something like that, um, I'll let you do this on film rather than on uh, video. And uh, we did. And Buck and I had worked out a system. If we were doing an interview like this, he would stop the, the, the film the audio would continue. I guess it was kind of a, uh, a podcasty kind of technique. Um, we, and then after we heard it, then I could say, oh, you know what, I'm going to ask you one question again. And I would just like hit buck and say roll. Yeah. Because that's the answer that I want, the, that one thing. Uh, and uh, so it, it worked out. And we, you know, we had great response to that show, Shag, in, uh, in South Carolina. Um, both Carolinas do the shag. Okay. Um, but uh, it was, it's the official state dance of South Carolina. And then it just uh, from then on, and then Buck and I won a little competition uh, at the Spoleto Arts Festival, which happens every year at, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. And we got to go to Australia for 28 days. 
um, for, and we, we covered the Spoleto Arts Festival when it went to Australia. And uh, we were in Melbourne, and it was just excellent. And I, he had said, <laughs> Buck's always looking for you know, other, other projects, or, okay, we're going to do a show about the, the arts festival, but let's also do a show about traveling in Australia. Right. And I said, okay. And so I asked for permission for that, and they said, nope. No extra days. This can't appear to be a junket. It has to just be you're going to cover the Spoleto Arts Festival. But we realized we would have, you know, time when you couldn't do it. And so we made that extra little documentary about traveling in Australia at the same time. The wacky, did, what's it called? Slightly wacky Aussie doco. Yes. And so we did a 90-minute program about the arts festival, and we did a half-hour thing called the Slightly Wacky Aussie Daco. That was... Uh, you know, uh, 1985, 86. And uh, shortly thereafter, another friend who had gone on to work for the public television station, I, he had worked, we had worked together in South Carolina. He was in Denver, Colorado. And he called me and he said, Rick, there's an ad in Broadcasting Magazine. You should answer. And I said, why? And he goes, it's in Pittsburgh. And I said, uh, do I want to go back to Pittsburgh? And he said, you never see a big station like WQED advertising for a producer. You should answer their ad. And so I did. I was like obviously riding high, having just been to Australia and everything, but I sent the slightly wacky Aussie Daco as a sample of my work. And WQED responded and said, Why don't you come visit your parents? <laughs> We'd like to meet you. And so that's how I got my job here at WQED, that thing that I made about Australia. Did you know with the, uh, as, when you started here at QED uh, as a local producer, right? Did you know what the expectations were for you, or what did you think you were going to be doing? Little stories, full, full 30, 40, 60 minute? Uh, no. Uh, well, yeah, Nancy Lavin, who's the, the, the woman who, who hired me here, she was the uh, executive producer for local programming. Um, WQED didn't do a lot of local programming then in the 80s. We were primarily a national producer. Um, Actually, when I started here, we were still making National Geographic specials here. I, they already, we already knew that they were leaving, mm -hmm. but they were still being made here. And like back where my office is now, that was a film editing unit um, for National Geographic. But we did a lot of science shows and uh, really extraordinary things, Planet Earth. Um, and, you know, uh, so we followed that up. Uh, you know, Nancy had been hired, I think, uh, to try and beef up local programming. And so that's what started. There were no rules. We could do sort of whatever we want. And, uh, you know, you, you know that I, I just recently realized that w right after I came here, uh, Mayor Caligiri No, no, not the mayor. I did Mayor Caligiri's funeral with Nancy Polinsky, but also uh, Prince Charles came to town. Now King Charles III, and we just recently found that tape. And, uh, you know, uh, it's... Those memories of, you know, Pittsburgh seemed like the center of the universe after being in South Carolina for a while. So it was it was fun. And uh, we made that show called Remaking Cities. I did a show about uh, transplants. Mm -hmm. the, and that's the first show I did here. It was a half hour. So that was sort of, I think, what they expected. Um, and I always tell the tale. I didn't know how goofy I could be. I You know, in South Carolina, I always tried to make things unexpected. And... Uh, in this, uh, the show I made about organ transplants, because in 1987, when I came here, Pittsburgh was the world capital of organ transplants. 
more organ transplants were done in Pittsburgh that year than in the rest of the world combined. Wow. Yes, we were the world capital of organ transplants, and uh, we did a show called Transplant Town. We used to be the Steel City, now we're the Transplant Town. And uh, I didn't know how goofy I could be, but I had this weird thing, and I just thought, we could use organ music. <laughs> so all the music in that show, Transplant Town, is organ music. Nothing is ever said about it, but I just thought, oh, if, we, if someone recognizes it, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's all organ music. Um, and I, at the time, we used to have to have a, in, uh, an all-staff screening of everything that was produced. I'm glad that's not happening right now. <laughs> um, but uh, we... Uh, at that thing, Nancy Polinsky started to laugh when she realized, oh my God, all this music is organ music and it's a show about organ transplants. So, you know, just a play on words and something funny that I was, I was happy about. So. When did the, um, the Pittsburgh History Series uh, at QED start with your shows? Um, that's, I'm going to say, uh, Probably early 90s. Um, I'd already done a couple things. I'd done Kennywood. I'd done things that aren't there anymore, I think. And we heard about L.A. In the, in the Current, which is the PBS public television newspaper, there was an article that someone in San Francisco, I'm not sorry, in Los Angeles, someone in Los Angeles was doing a series called the Los Angeles History Series. And Nancy Lavin said, you know what? There's always history in those things you make. Uh, why don't we call them the Pittsburgh History Series? And so we did. We came up with that little logo, and uh, it, uh, you know, uh, we didn't limit it to six. We just said, and we went back and put that logo, rebranded those first shows, Kennywood Memories, Transplant Town, um, things that aren't there anymore. We put that logo on the front of them, so they're all now considered the Pittsburgh History Series. Um, and, you know... Uh, I'm extremely proud of it. It's just amazing. I'm not going to ask you where ideas come from or where your, you know, where your ideas come from. Cause they come from anywhere and there's like no shortage. Right. But when you do have an idea that you want to pursue, what makes you think that it could be a, a possible show or it, it could be a topic that other people would like? Oh, or, that's probably gut. Okay. Uh, probably, you know, yeah. Um, and you know, uh, and always the thought, can I spend six months on this? Yeah. Because um, I used to, I mean, that's still about how much you would, we would spend on a show, an hour-long documentary. Um, and uh, I remember, I mean, as an example of that, uh, when, we were, when we started, got to start to do national shows for PBS, I proposed that we do uh, hot dogs and amusement parks at the same time. So we would try to find cities where there was a, a nice old amusement park and a great hot dog place. And the, always had the same crew. Um, and uh, the crew thought no one would ever watch that hot dog show, but they loved working on the amusement park show. Um, and both have had a nice career or a nice reaction, but the hot dog show became far bigger than uh, the uh, great old amusement parks. and. Uh, you know, it was just fun, and but it was always just me thinking like, oh, I would like to watch a program on hot yeah. dogs. <laughs> so that's why we did it. But your first national docs were documentaries were uh, Sure Things and Ice Cream. Right, right? Ice Cream and Sure Things. Um, we got to do the national programs for PBS because of the Pennsylvania Diners show. Okay. Um, 
it had been uh, a big success here in uh, Pittsburgh, and uh, we always sent them to PBS in in DC or Virginia or wherever they were, and uh, they would always say, "Ah, oh, it's too local." You know, you know, these Pittsburgh shows too local. And then when we sent the diner show, they said, "You know what? Everybody knows this kind of restaurant. Let's let's give this a national airing." It was probably. I'm going to guess 70 or 80 minutes long. They said, cut it down to an hour and uh, we'll run it nationally. And we got really great ratings. That was the, the key. Back then, you know, <laughs> it seems funny now because ratings, I don't think anybody even talks about them, but um, Nielsen ratings were big. And there were several cities across America where it was like it was number one in the market for the hour that it was on. And it was also the time when people used to click through channels. Right. Clickers were new on your TV and... I think if you were watching and you would just click through and what's that? And it was an unusual show about diners. And so we profited from that as well. And because the diner show, Pennsylvania Diners and Other Roadside Restaurants, was so popular, PBS said, what else would you like to do? And I made a list of 10 things on which was ice cream and sure things, or as I always say, non-environmental reasons why people like to go to the beach. We don't really talk about the ocean or the sand or anything like that. It's really Uh. just other fun stuff that you get to do at the beach. So with saltwater taffy and lifeguards and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So um, fishing, I remember we had a great yeah. time. What shows have you enjoyed making the most? You know, whether it's on the road or locally or, you know, memories with the crew? Well, I always say, you know, uh, I, I, I love the Pittsburgh shows probably more than the national shows only because no one can love a national show the way Pittsburghers love a Pittsburgh show. And so, um, you know, I love them as a group. Um, but I, w- I, I often say that, you know, the, the, the program that I think of as a turning point is hot dogs. Because it was the first time, and there would have been hot dogs and in great old amusement parks, I got to pick my crew and, and say, I want to work with this person and this person and this person. And that made a big difference. Um, before that, there was often like, oh, you're going to have to go on the road with this. And when you go on the road, you are a family. It's a little bit like you're married. You're spending a lot of time together. And if you're not happy with the other people, it can be like, oh, okay, another day on the road. Yeah. Um, but uh, for those shows, I got to pick my crews, and I really loved that. And so, um, but, you know, I have, I, there's like the show Houses Around Here. It's, I always say it's, my favorite of the not famous programs. It's one of the Pittsburgh history series, but we got to go around and look in houses. And I always think it's funny when you see a, a magazine about houses, there's very seldom is anyone in the pictures. It's always just the furniture and the landscape <laughs> and all that. Um, but I wanted to do a show about houses where we would meet the people that lived there. So I like that. Um, but, you know, they are very much my children. And, you know, it, it's hard to say who's my favorite or all of that, but, you know, uh, it's, uh, I, uh, the other night I just, I was looking at something in, in a list, history of Pittsburgh and 17 objects came up and I just thought, wow, I haven't thought about that program in a while. And after about six months, it's as though someone else made them uh, and, and they're fun for me to watch as, oh, I forgot that we did that. Yeah. You know? So, um, and you know, I can't think of any that make me cringe. Okay. Well, that's good. That's, I think that's a good sign. How about your, how about your style? You know, is it called a scrapbook history style? You well, know, do you categorize your style or is it just the way you tell stories? This is just how you want to do it. 
Uh, that's true for a large part of it. It's just the way I think, I guess. Um, and um, actually, I'm, I'm aware, because we've done so many, that there is, each of my shows is a series of short story, uh, short pieces. I, there's not anyone that has like, like an overall theme, I don't think. It ends up being little stories all strung together. And, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to appear. I appear more in recent things and in this Gumbans podcast. Um, but I used to just, I didn't want to, I, I love public television, and I didn't want it to look like local news television where you, the uh, reporter is a major focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be a voice. Yeah. And that's the way I am in almost all of my major. Um, you know, maybe when we get to It's Pittsburgh and a lot of other stuff, I start to appear in some of the stories, but very little. And then uh, in Nebby, you see me a couple of times, too, I think. But uh, it's, uh, I, I still like what I consider classic documentary style. What, uh, what show do people talk to you the most about? Kennywood Memories. Kennywood. Yeah, I always think that when I die, that's what it will say. <laughs> Man who made Kennywood Memories dies. Uh, but I know that I also bolster that because when we were doing Nebby, I went back and found the old Kennywood tapes, and we did two more half hours um, that Kennywood summer and uh, Don't Stand Up, which was all stuff we shot back in 1988 for Kennywood Memories that we never used, but it was good. Mm-hmm. And so it, that was fun to do that, and uh, that you know, you know, every now and then it's just uh, someone will say, you know, like, I grew up watching Kennywood Memories, and, <laughs> yeah, and the number of people that say I know that show by heart, it, it's it's very humbling. And you did um, interview with Fred Rogers, right? That Ox- was right after I came here. I did a long interview with Fred Rogers, August Wilson. August Wilson, um, he was a Pittsburgher of the Year. Mm-hmm. We used to do a show every year for Pittsburgh Magazine's Pittsburgher of the Year, and that's why I got to go to New York and interview August Wilson. And out of all the interviews you've done, do you have one that stands out out of all the people you've talked to? That's funny. Yeah, I mean, those are obviously, and I don't, I, I, I tend to not do uh, personality journalism or whatever you want to call it. I, I don't have a lot of famous people in my shows. Um, it's, I, I more enjoy interviewing people that you normally aren't on television. Mm-hmm. But uh, when people ask me that about an interview that I'm really uh, proud of, I always like to point out that in Stuff That's Gone, the show that I did, there's an interview with Wendy King, who worked for KDKA Radio. She and her husband, Ed uh, King, did a show called Party Line. And my grandmother and my mother were regular listeners to Party Line. It was on KDK radio for like 30 years. Um, and on, late at night, sometimes from 9 to 11. Uh, and it, you never, it was a call-in show. It was, people called in, but you never heard the caller. You just heard the host, Ed and Wendy, and then they usually had a third guy, third person. Um, who would be with them. And they would say, you know, like, oh, we have a caller on the line who wants to know, uh, you know, where's the world's oldest roller coaster? And then people would try to respond and all this, and they would talk about anything. And uh, I remember that show very fondly. And, but I knew that Ed King had passed away uh, around 1970, I think, and I, 
I thought, I want to do something about Party Line, and I called Wendy, and she said, you know, no, I don't want to talk about it. And, but then I think she had seen some of my stuff, and she goes, but I like your programs, blah, blah, blah. We talked, and we got, you know, we established a relationship, and then uh, I kept, I would call her every day. I'm saying, what, have you considered again? Would you do this? And <laughs> then one day she called me, and she said, I've decided I would do this if you will do it in my attic. Hmm. And I said, well, oh, and she goes, that's where all the boxes are from uh, Party Line. And it was to me like so ideal. Yes, yes, we'll go to your <laughs> attic and do an interview. And so we did. And I, I, always, I always think very fondly of that. And she was great, obviously. And it was a, a voice that I remembered from my childhood. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say it to me, oh, I grew up listening to you with Kennywood Memories and stuff. Yeah. And they go, oh, that's like Wendy King. Yeah. It's a voice that you know from your childhood. So what uh, 50 years have gone by that you've been in the business. What have you loved most about the past 50 years working in this industry? Well, uh, I know that I, I love public television and I love what it does. Um, public broadcasting, maybe I should say. Um, um, but I think the thing that I love most is just the constant variety. You know, like even within gum bands, we, we cover a wide range of topics and that's what I love. I love that there seem to be few limits and I don't get stuck right. uh, with a subject. And uh, you know, that, that's, I guess, partially an earlier question too, that I, you know, what subjects do I want to deal with? Ones that have open ends that I can, you know, uh, consider and talk about and, you know, various aspects. and. How does food come into this? Because I always like to figure out food. Food seems to touch everything. Even when we did cemeteries for a national show, we found a, a restaurant called Six Feet Under down in Atlanta, <laughs> and that was great. It was excellent, you know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, the variety and the surprises. I even now. I mean, I've been working on Pittsburgh for thirty some years, right? But Pittsburgh still surprises me, and I love that. I think that variety and leaving it open-ended is what, when people consume your shows and they're watching them, it's what makes it, makes you feel part of the community too, because it covers so much, you know, it's not, uh, it's inclusive rather than exclusive. So I want to ask you some, some more fun questions, Rick. <laughs> what, uh, what shows do you like to watch? Do you like to watch TV? I watch very little TV. I like to watch John Oliver on HBO. I think that's the show that I most look forward to. Okay. Which is kind of odd. I don't know why, but uh, yeah. And and um, it's weird right now because there's a writer's strike on, but yeah. I, I do see late night comedians. I, I see, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Jimmy Fallon and, uh, you know, especially like Seth Meyers. Yeah. He, he has some nice Pittsburgh connections too, which I really like. Um, I watch 60 Minutes. Um, I, I haven't been watching, I used to always watch CBS Sunday morning, but I've been walking in the mornings, and so I, I don't watch it as much as I used to. Um, but, you know, I'm not a big TV watcher, and uh, actually more concerning to me is I realize I read less than I used to, and I think that's because we have phones that we look at, and, you know, I do Duolingo when I have 15 minutes uh, to spare, and... Uh, I sometimes play solitaire, and you know it's time when I—I I think in the past I might have just been reading. What's a uh, what's a perfect day for Rick Seaback? 
If you have the day off from QED. Oh, a day off. Well, I always now, I start with this walk. I, mm-hmm. I start every morning. It's, it's a weird habit that I developed because I did this diabetes prevention program through UPMC. And, and what's the total weight loss, if you don't mind me asking? I, I don't mind you asking. It's about 150 pounds, which is like astounding to me. Yeah. Um, because uh, it wasn't that difficult. Okay. And uh, I didn't have to have surgery or anything like that. I just did it by watching what I ate and trying to increase my activity. And the activity that I've increased is walking. And I walk, try to walk four miles every morning. Um, but, I, you know, and so that's a, a thing that I get in my head. And now I have to do it. And I love the fact that I know my neighbors better than before. And people, you know, honk their horns. <laughs> and, um, I always think I, I want to tell everyone, you don't know how dark your windshield is because i think people expect me to but you it's hard to see people in cars you know um unless you have a convertible and then everybody can see you Um, which you have a convertible i I now have a convertible so that uh makes you more visible um but you know uh i don't know i i I do love to drive and i love this car more than any car so I, i i would love to go for a long drive i still love to drive down route 88 um, I did a show for uh, Nevi called A Short History of Route 88. Um, I find that uh, in my past life, I used to travel a lot to find stuff to eat. Okay. And I'm trying to do that less. And um, my sister turned me on to the thrift stores, and I, I, I use that, I think, as a substitute. Um, uh, I like to stop at a thrift store. And so I know where Goodwills are all over town. And... Uh, red, white, and blue, and the Salvation Army, and all those things. I, I, I love to walk through a, th- a thrift store. Um, and I don't know, sometimes people are surprised to see me. They're like, oh, you're here at a thrift store? I said, yeah, because like, you know. And, um, but I, I think I also got a little carried away with it. I, I've become a shirtaholic. That's, and th- I thought about doing a show about that, about the fact that, you know, shirts. I just think we, we don't know enough about shirts. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, and uh, even just the fact that like every tag in a men's shirt says where it's made, made in Mauritius, made in Nicaragua, you know, and I, I just think it, it connects us to the world in a weird kind of way. Um, but, uh, you know, I also know that there's like terminology that I wish I knew more about. Like I wish I knew what, the, what you call that little button that's on your cuff. Do you know, like when you... Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, there, I'm sure that there's a, you know, tailors must have a, a word for that, for that little button yeah. that's there. Uh, and, uh, you know, every every piece of a shirt uh, I just find interesting. So uh, I say I'm a shirtaholic. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, that, and uh, I do love every Wednesday night I play records. That makes for a great day. And, uh, you know, uh, it's... That, that came about during the pandemic as well, when I heard that they played records at this bar in Squirrel Hill, and I said, I want to do that, and they said, we'd love to have you, and I've been doing it for, I think, I can't tell if it's two years now, it's over almost three years, maybe. Records? Yeah. Oh, that's going into the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's definitely mid-pandemic, because I started it when the bar owner, Pete Kurzweig, it was his birthday, and I took him some cookies that I'd made, and he said, I gotta go, because I'm playing records. And I said, what do you mean you're playing records? And so, uh, you know, he still comes in and he has a great memory. So last night we had two themes. We were playing geography, songs that have a place name in the title, and beer. And I was impressed. He he thought of that Tom Waits song, Warm Beer and Cold Women. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I, it was perfect. That was really, you know, I just love the fact that he just off the top of his head, oh, there's that Tom Waits song about warm beer and cold women. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love that. I love playing records. Uh, I don't know. I love hanging out at the house and putzing. What? I love sitting on my front porch. I still do. I, did, I started that during the pandemic, and I still like that. What, um, what do you like about living in Pittsburgh? That's a really good question. I love, uh, I love the variety uh, of, uh, you know, I love the fact that as the 19th century became the 20th century, I think Pittsburgh was a world capital. The richest yeah. men in the world lived here. You know, Westinghouse figures out alternating current with help from Tesla and oil is first pumped from the ground in Titusville. I mean, we were a world center of all kinds of innovation. And I think we still profit from that. And it makes us very interesting as, uh, I don't know, what do we call ourselves? A middle-sized city, you know? Um, I mean, we're a big city, but uh, you know, not a giant one. Right. And I just like that. And I love our topography and I love our neighborhoods and I love the crazy people who live here. So, you know, what more can you ask for? Uh, I, you know. And I, I love learning more and more about it all the time. How about uh, favorite places to eat? No, I won't do that. You won't do, you won't do that. <laughs> There's too many. I have favorite places to eat, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But uh, well, I mean, I can tell you. You know that I love Maynam Thai, which is the uh, Thai restaurant in Blanox that's run by uh, Supani Supani Kansuan. And uh, I know her husband, Kevin Yenerol, and they've been very nice to me. Um, and uh, I love, still love Amel's uh, in Rankin, um, which is, a, a, I say, an old steelworker bar that has incredibly good food. Um, but, you know, I also love new places. I, I love Mitch's Barbecue. We've been to Mitch's Barbecue yeah. together up in uh, Warrendale. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, if I gotta go to, there's a new breakfast place in Regent Square that I haven't been to yet called the Famous Cafe. I look forward to that. Um, but I also will always love uh, the Pamela's, the P&G Diner in uh, Millvale inside the Lincoln Pharmacy, um, which is, you know, I think my, my go-to breakfast place. So um, I used to always say I loved as well uh, Enrico Biscotti when they were serving breakfast. Now they're just lunch, I think, oh, okay. uh, since the pandemic. Uh, but I, I miss that breakfast. That was one of my favorite places to go for breakfast. Uh, but, you know, I will go anywhere and try anything. I have no limits. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy eating. Rick, congratulations on 50 years. <laughs> I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity to chat about all kinds of crazy things. This Gum Bands podcast is made possible by the Buell Foundation, serving southwestern Pennsylvania since 1927, and by listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.